0: The term literary knowledge came from, initially from my sense that literary criticism has tremendous effects on culture and society that come from what other disciplines call knowledge.
1: Christopher Newfield, then president of the Modern Language Association, introducing his presidential plenary panel on the topic of what is literary knowledge at the MLA convention in San Francisco earlier this year.
0: We often use terms like readings to describe the final result of our work, an outcome that we refer to as a perspective on a text. Criticism is often said to teach judgment, which helps people discriminate between the bad, the good, and the best, which is good for creating canons and ranking things but not so good for understanding how the world works in order to change it. Criticism in this traditional view teaches us how to value knowledge But criticism doesn't produce knowledge. In one particularly clear formulation of this view, criticism discloses what a text can do when approached in whatever way it takes to get the most out of it. Criticism offers, quote, the promise of revealing value, if not conferring validity, unquote.
1: Chris is being a little cagey about it, but he's quoting from an essay by Elisa Tamarkin that was part of the 2022 special issue of the journal American Literary History on the function of American literary criticism at the present time.
0: So if the claim is that this is all that criticism does, then I do not agree. I've long come to literature as a source of detailed knowledge about subjective experience, about interpersonal relations in every concrete setting, about sexuality and race on a a level political science cannot reach, about the personal and social effects of changing regimes of economic accumulation, you name it. For example, I just listened to Philippa Gregory's 1987 romance novel, Wide Acre, which I had found in the free section of Audible Books. It's set on a great estate in Sussex. Did you hear that?
1: If you're listening on good headphones, you won't be able to miss it. The audience. When Chris described browsing for free audiobooks, the audience, well, I can only describe it as a tittering. A tittering so pronounced it actually tripped Chris up ever so slightly. Here it is again,
0: which I had found in the free section of Audible books. It's set on a great estate in Sussex.
1: What is that? An audience of academics sitting in judgment of middle brow media, or is it sympathetic recognition? I get my fix of Audible too. I
0: found in the free no, no. section of Audible books. It's set on a great estate in Sussex in the south of England in the 1770s. I have previously read superb historians like Perry Anderson and Tom Nairn on the colonial power that English landowners wielded over their own population as they changed local communities forever by enclosing common land and selling agricultural products outside of local markets. But Wideacre offered my first real understanding of why They were okay about doing this to their own land and their own communities. And this explanation involved the gentry's equation of an attachment to the land with owning the land, which in turn cannot be separated from their attachment of eroticized kinship within their own lineage. Whiteacre is a romance, but I feel that it gave me knowledge, and then I would realize that knowledge by writing criticism about this romance. I think in our disciplines here at the MLA we are too humble about the interlinked subjective and objective knowledge that criticism brings into the world. I would like criticism to be very immodest intellectually and put itself in the position of developing the full spectrum and hybrid knowledges for the 2020s and 2030s that society both needs and, I believe, wants from us.
1: Welcome to The American Vandal, from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebel. As I've mentioned before, the 2023 MLA convention, which Chris hosted, was one of the instigating events for this series, and all along I've wanted to include Chris's call for disciplinary immodesty, which I broadly agree with. But I saved it until now, because in making this point, he cited an audiobook. I think it's important that Chris unselfconsciously acknowledges his medium of consumption and also how the audience registers that acknowledgement. As we discussed last episode, we are already in an age of multimedia literary circulation. For the president of the MLA to accept that is symbolically significant, but much of the profession is still catching up. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about the new media, including audiobooks, that have a tendency to make academic critics titter, but which are undeniably changing how literature is produced, consumed, and circulated. Which means these media are also forcing us to reconsider how we think about who a literary critic is, what they do, and how they do it. The Whiteacre trilogy recordings that Chris listened to are Audible editions, which means they are exclusively available to Audible members, Audible, a subsidiary of Amazon, is the retailer for more than 60% of the audiobook sales in the U.S. Audiobooks still only comprise about 5% of the overall retail book market, but they are by far the fastest growing segment, and industry prognosticators expect audiobook sales will triple or even quadruple by the end of the 2020s. Following the Amazon model, Audible has positioned itself to skim this growth by using monopoly power to drive down prices and wages, as well as keep audiobook consumers in their ecosystem, which also offers a number of perks. Audible not only has a large archive of audiobooks and other audio genres, available only to subscribers, but Audible editions often come with exclusive paratexts. In the case of Wideacre, Audible commissioned a new forward recorded by the novel's author, Philippa Gregory. And for their in-house editions, Audible hires premier voice talent, often algorithmically identified using Audible listener data, and ACX, the Audible Creation Exchange, a job board for narrators which the company manages.
2: The high note of pleasure and pain disturbed my sleep, and I awoke, full of regret.
1: The first volume of Whiteacre is narrated by Emma Powell, a London-based voiceover artist, who has worked for Disney, Nintendo, and the BBC, but since 2016 has spent vast quantities of time narrating audiobooks, as well as long-form essays for digital publications like The Guardian and Aeon, the latter an important para-academic publisher. Powell has narrated 232 books in the Audible catalog, The vast majority of them in the last five years, and a half dozen audible editions. On ACX, Powell advertises her rates as between 200 and 400 per finished hour. At these rates, she would have been paid between five and ten thousand dollars for the 26 hour and 41 minute narration of Whiteacre. But as Powell was still relatively new to narration when Whiteacre was recorded in 2017, with only thirty some books on her resume it seems likely her rates were then a little lower. As Laura McGrath, Alexander Manchel, and J.D. Porter detail in The Work of the Audiobook, an essay published in Los Angeles Review of Books earlier this year, Powell belongs to a class of extremely talented, hardworking, and critically engaged laborers whose work is largely invisible and sometimes unrenumerated. I spoke with McGrath on the day the essay was published She's an assistant professor of English at Temple University, as well as the founding editor of the Post 45 Data Collective, and with Dan Sinikin, co-editor of the culture Industries section at Public Books. She's very much an expert on criticism in the wild, that is, how literary studies training gets applied in professions beyond academia and book reviewing. Thinking about audiobooks as a kind of criticism. And one of the things you describe in that piece is the way in which the very best narrators and indeed studios that employ and identify narrators are, are basically doing scholarship. They're doing historical scholarship, they're doing genre scholarship. They're looking into things like accents and sort of cultural awareness and all of this intellectual labor that goes into preparing before they even turn the mics on and do the narration. You know, in media studies, you know, it's law been a tradition to think about adaptation from one medium to another as an act of interpretation. But I think that this is often overlooked when it comes to audiobooks specifically, that there is some sort of critical valence that goes into narration. And so I was hoping you would start by talking a little bit about that, how it shapes the way you might think about criticism when you recognize that there is this largely invisible community of critics and scholars who are audiobook narrators.
3: Hmm. Yeah, there's a lot to say about that. One of the things that I thought really hard about was what a medium specific audiobook criticism might look like. Audiobook narrators operate in this really interesting space where they're doing such labor intensive work that they are not getting compensated for. And so much of that work looks like literary criticism in order to give a reading of a book. We use that phrase all the time. This is my reading of a poem. This is my reading of a novel. This is my reading of an essay, which has a lot to do with the way that we perform criticism criticism, but also has a lot to do with the labor of criticism. And when we focus or think about audiobook narrators at all, which is very rarely, it tends to be purely in in the space of the performance. And of course, there is a long tradition in performance studies of thinking about performance as a work of criticism. But as we think about what the audiobook narrator is doing, that feels like it, it needs to be really central. But the audiobook narrator isn't really considered much at all. If they are, they're treated according to the sort of stereotypes that we have of actors. These stereotypes that are not fair, but the sort of dumb actor, air quotes, stereotype, where the narrator is just a vessel for the real work, which is the work that the author has done. But in actuality, when you are a consumer who's listening to an audio book, there is no author other than the narrator. The, The narrator is performing the role of the author in as much as they're also giving a reading of the text. And so they're always working in this dual space. And so to think about a medium-specific audiobook criticism would mean that we have to both pay attention to the text and pay attention to the performance as a work of criticism in and of itself. To pay attention to just the text seems to be literary criticism, or to pay attention to just the performance seems like performance studies. And so there has to be i think some fusion of both of those in in the way that we approach audiobooks Uh, and that's not something that i have seen happening yet in the audiobook criticism space i I wouldn't even really call it criticism i'd call it like reviews right this narrator was really good or this narrator was really annoying and, and not doing the sort of critical work to engage with the narrator as a fellow critic and so that's something i think would be really important if we're going to take audiobooks seriously as a form and as a form that's growing and continuing to reshape the market. So I think a a good start to thinking about audiobooks as a form is to do the sort of material and sociological work to understand how they're made and how they're produced, which is largely invisible labor. Maybe as we are all becoming amateur podcasters, we're all getting a sense of how taxing this work can be. You certainly are. Although you're not an amateur, you're a real podcaster. I am an amateur podcaster. (laughs) That's a good place to start, right? Just by acknowledging how much labor is involved in this process to begin with. But It's interesting to think about what an audiobook criticism would look like. For the LARB social media, I was having conversations with their social media director about promoting the piece. And we had this idea of finding clips from Thank You For Listening, which was the novel that's at the center of the piece. And so I worked on trying to track down clips of the sections that we quoted or just like nice, clippable, quippy, Clips that would illustrate some of the points we were talking about, and it was so hard. It was so hard to take a book that I had listened to and then try to quote it basically. And that's the work that we do all the time, right? We do a close right. reading. We look at a passage, we but it, you can't quite do that in the same way, or at least For me, for someone who's used to reading visually, I I wasn't able to make that transition very easily. And it took me hours and hours to track down a handful of clips. And so it really forced me to reflect on the sort of labor that would be necessary for doing criticism that way. Um, And perhaps why we don't see much audiobook criticism because of the sorts of challenges that consuming or that reading primarily via audiobook requires of us.
1: Yeah. Part of what makes it interesting and, and relevant to this series is that you do a very good job in the essay of highlighting the extent to which even really intense and thoughtful consumers of audiobooks have an image of what the narrator is that is very distorted, and as you just, you just described to some extent, an actor, somebody who is just giving a performance, right? who shows up in the studio with the book in hand and starts reading. right? I think that is the typical way of imagining the narrator, and it draws a direct line to how we imagine critics, and how we imagine scholars, and how we imagine professors, that the labor product, whether that is the the essay, or the hour in the classroom, or the certain number of words, or even the book, that's the thing that gets paid for. Uh, And certainly, many of us are assessed on the number of credit hours we teach, and and never actually are, are things like prep hours and grading hours taken into consideration. And I thought that was a very interesting aspect of thinking about the podcast narrator or I'm sorry <laughs> the audiobook narrator although I think it, it also applies to podcasters to some extent is that sounds
3: the, like it for you this season
1: <laughs> the extraordinary amount of sort of invisible labor that is happening to generate a product but that in some ways the better the product is, the more the consumer, is relieved of thinking about what goes into it, right? Mm-hmm. That is a difficulty that you identify in, the, like you said, the sort of sociological work that you're doing is that the very best audiobook narrators make it feel as though they are the author generating this spontaneously and naturally with their sheer talent, mm-hmm. as opposed to somebody who has done weeks of research and practice and working on pronunciations and accents and understanding genre characteristics in order to get to that point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This brings me to a question that I've been asking over and over again, which is, is it possible to separate the kind of crisis of method from the other crisis, which is the intensification and devaluation of labor? Mm -hmm. And one of the things I really liked about your piece is we've been talking about that a lot on this podcast going back years now in terms of academia. But what you're showing is that there are also these sort of related professions where the same kind of de-skilling, de-professionalization, devaluation of labor, intensification of labor is happening, and maybe putting the very production model in process, right? There's no shortage of, of demand for podcasts, but the sort of model set up by Audible and Blackstone and the major podcast production houses, or I'm sorry, the major audiobook production houses. I'm apparently do that over and over again. <laughs> um, is not one that's sustainable, that at some point it, it is actually going to break. It would appear to me that there is nothing more important to an audiobook than the narrator. Mm-hmm. The the rare reviews that we get seem to suggest that people choose audiobooks as much based on narrators as they do on authors. And yet, the system that we have set up devalues the narrator to such an extent that it's actually going to drive very talented people out of this profession and potentially make it unsustainable for them. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so I was wondering, is there any way to separate the sort of crisis of method from the crisis of labor?
3: No, I don't think so. You know, it's really interesting to think about audiobooks as a lens for that conversation more broadly because we're moving toward AI narration, whether that's the app that you're using to have that piece narrated for you because we were not selected by Autumn to be narrated or the kind of major production houses also working in casualization. So a number of uh, audiobook narrators, particularly the very prolific ones, the Highly skilled, the very famous ones, famous in the world of audiobooks.
1: Whalen is at the center. Julia the... Whalen, sure. No,
3: Eduardo Valerini is another. Cassandra Campbell is another. A narrator I really like is Rebecca Lohman. I don't actually know about all of them, but I know for Whalen and Valerini, members of the Screen Actors Guild. And so they come from a union or they are unionized in some way because they're also screen actors. Mm -hmm. What Audible has done is the creation of ACX, which is the Audible Exchange, which is basically the like uber of audiobook narration. So you've got people that are extraordinarily talented who are unionized. You also have the, you can be an audiobook narrator in your house that Amazon has developed via Audible, via ACX, where you or I could go upload our samples right now, develop a profile and get selected for whatever narration happens to be available. And a lot of them tend to be low budget. They tend to be self-published. They tend to be high production genres, erotica, for instance, there's, there's a lot of erotica content on ACX and you would get paid at an extraordinarily low rate because you are an amateur. And there's a sense in which this is what you're supposed to do to earn your stripes, to get a sense of how the industry works, to get used to narrating, probably working under a pseudonym. And then eventually you might be able to make a name for yourself and get bigger gigs working with a producer or whatever. So you have that literal gigification of audiobook narration that happens at the kind of lower levels of the industry and the lower levels of the literary food chain as well. And then of course, we're also moving to AI. So you see the whole Process, right? The whole way of moving to automation. So, your comparison, I think, to higher ed is pretty apt. We've got the tenure track option. We've got the screen actors guild actors who are making this work. And then we've got this whole army of adjuncts that are doing the bulk of, of narration. And then gradually, AI, or the fear is that AI is going to be kind of edging out that human interpretation. Whether you are working in the sort of gig ACX space or you are a, a highly esteemed narrator, you're still doing the work of interpretation you're still doing the work of literary criticism whether or not you acknowledge that or whether or not that is a particularly intentional part of your work you're still doing that work right? Mm-hmm. Not spending the time to develop voices, not spending the time to learn about your genre's history. That's still a critical choice. And and then AI will do very little <laughs> to none yes. of that work. Certainly none of the historical knowledge, none of the performance. Um. And,
1: and you make a point, and it's some, you cite in the essay as well, and who is also going to be interviewed for this series. It's a point that Mark McGurl makes over and over again, which is an Amazon review, a Goodreads review, like is still doing the work of literary criticism. Yes. Right? We may have fewer publications dedicated to the long-form review essay, and that actually I think Ryan Ruby argues, actually, that's not the case either. We actually have maybe more of those than ever. Mm -hmm. They're just not getting as much prestige attention. But just because it's happening in these sort of smaller doses, more amateurish ways, Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that it isn't still having some sort of impact. In fact, in aggregate, it becomes absolutely necessary. That if you're going to have this enormous appetite for audiobooks, you may need this class of sort of adjunctified narrators in order to feed it. And that is clearly the case at at the university that is getting proven over and over by by graduate student and academic worker strikes in recent months that this may be a class of laborers whose value is being misunderstood by the university and is not as replaceable, not as substitutable as they would like to have us believe. Mm -hmm. That sort of stratification and thinking about it in terms of both the input and the output, both the the labor itself and the products that it generates, I I think is a connection Mm -hmm. between these various media. There are probably more people depending upon the Amazon star reviews than there are on the New York Review of Books, right? Absolutely. <laughs> and there are more people, certainly, as you point out, depending on the sort of audible narrator reviews than there are on any kind of institutionalized or rigorous audiobook criticism. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. It is often misunderstood when we talk about the, a state of criticism, or it's just completely ignored and diminished and treated as inconsequential Mm -hmm. or as evidence of some sort of degradation.
3: And I, I think that's really important. I think not only the sort of vernacular literary criticism that we see in spaces like Goodreads or on Amazon reviews, which are forms of literary criticism, as McGirl said. But I think that helps think about the ways in which literary criticism is happening in so many spaces behind the scenes that we perhaps not call criticism, but I think we ought to, because I think it is quite consequential for the way that downstream you or I buy books, read books, or eventually teach them.
1: Laura will be returning next episode to talk about two more places where literary criticism is happening, somewhat on the down low, but with major consequences for what we buy, read, and teach. We'll be going inside the literary agency and the literary awards system. But now we're going to turn to Mark McGurl, the Albert Girard Professor of Literature at Stanford. McGurl has already twice upturned the discipline. By looking deeply at systems of publishing and reception that nobody else in literary studies was really paying attention to first with his history structural and formal analysis of creative writing degrees the program era and then the book which laura and i mentioned a sweeping investigation of how amazon has changed literary production circulation and reception titled everything and less the novel in the age of amazon You may remember John Guillory referring to it a few episodes ago as the apotheosis of a genre criticism tradition, which began almost a hundred years ago. We'll touch on this in the interview that follows, but Mark was more interested, as was I, in talking about his current work in progress on another mechanism of reception, the sheer scale of which makes it hard to comprehend, but perilous to overlook, as I think, once again, most of us have. Here's Mark,
4: cutting to the chase. The question always being, what exactly do you mean by criticism?
1: Yeah, so (laughs) let's get into that to start with, because I think this is the backdrop to this conversation. There are many people who think there is a very specific definition for criticism and others who believe it's a vague and open term. And so I'll start there. When you think of what criticism means, what are you thinking of?
4: Uh, Well, I tend to think of it as a very complex spectrum of things that one can think of as criticism, ranging from literary scholarship, as we've known it for a long time, and as appears in monographs and scholarly journals, where the evaluative part is pretty much uh, suppressed. It's only there implicitly in the suggestion that it's worth paying attention to something, to criticism as probably in the form of the sort of higher journalism reviews, as you might see it in the New Yorker or or the New Republic or online in LARB. But I've gotten interested lately in online phenomena that one could call criticism. I've been doing a little bit of a study of BookTube, Mm -hmm. that subset of the 38 million YouTube channels. A small subset of those are uh, (laughs) booktube channels. So basically channels where they discuss books. And then the model there is roughly, this is all very rough, but say a 20 minute video Mm -hmm. discussion of several books. And that's criticism. What's at issue there typically is not making general universal claims about literature. It's not tying literature to a given historical context, including the present. It's, you know, evaluations of books like, in the spirit of, do you want to buy this and read it? Mm-hmm. So it's that kind of criticism, but it's nonetheless, it's recognizably performing a critical function in relation to readers. And the thing to note about it is it's, it's simply its scale. So the most popular booktubers approach half a million subscribers, mm-hmm. and about 20% of their subscribers will listen to any given video. So you're talking about 15 minute video book review that gets. 150,000 views. Mm-hmm. When you start contemplating the scale of that in relation, say, to the New York Review of Books, mm-hmm. the circulation of the New York Review of Books is 145,000. And then ask yourself, how many of the subscribers of the NYRB read any given review in any given issue? And it's much less than the total subscriber base. I've subscribed to the New Yorker, for instance, like basically my whole life. Yeah. And I I think the percentage of The New Yorker that I've read over those years, and if I'm brutally honest, probably 1%. Yeah,
1: I was gonna say, the 20% who listen to the booktube is probably far too high compared
4: to, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, compared to the print versions. And so just as a phenomenon of scale, it's quite interesting. Substantively, do I find it illuminating? Not always, sometimes. Uh, On the margins, there are some booktubers who are really smart. When they have an interesting sort of angle on, on contemporary publishing. That's uh, another thing to be said is that the vast majority of booktubers are talking about contemporary releases, new releases. And they know a lot about what they know about. But on the other hand, it inevitably and overwhelmingly takes the form of, did I like this book or not? And would right. you like it or not? And then, of course, notoriously, the most extreme version of this would be book talk. So that subset of TikTok channels that focus on books. And that's the one that people have heard about, because the publishing industry is really into book talk, Mm -hmm. because that takes the form typically of a 25 second or 30 second, or maybe up to a minute video, which will have a slogan on the screen, books, I would sell my soul to read for the first time again, Mm -hmm. and then we see the covers and then it's over. Um, So if you could imagine a 30 second spot commercial for books that's what those book talk videos are hard to call that criticism frankly that's advertising but of course there's a continuity between all forms of book reviewing at least outside of academia but although even there in academia there's a market Mm -hmm. for the books that we teach something starts appearing on syllabi that's a nice long tail situation for that publisher. Right. The farther you go along the spectrum, and it's certainly when you get into the video form of literary criticism, mm-hmm. if we can still call it that, you're getting closer and closer to the purchase decision. It's really mm-hmm. becoming, it's a market function.
1: To what extent is the antecedent here? forms of print criticism and to what extent is the antecedent previous forms of maybe televisual book talk right Uh, yeah whether on like pbs stations or talk shows i i think that the author interview and the critical discussion of books has almost completely abandoned cable and network television Mm -hmm. but it certainly was it it thrived in the mid-century us and people like norman Mailer and gore vidal and, and james baldwin became public figures as much through their television appearances as the through their writing but even as recently as Jon Stewart's The Daily Show, right, there was still a segment that was basically a, a kind of discussion of a, a new release.
4: Yeah, uh, so for like, one minute. minute. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, and so I wondered, as you've been looking at BookTube and Book Talk, to what extent are they drawing on these previous iterations of televisual? book criticism or book reviewing? And to what extent is it something in, is either entirely new or taking its inspiration from other digital media and social media?
4: So there's a small, a relatively small subset of booktube videos to do indeed take the form either of an interview with an author, with a popular author, or take the form of conversations between booktubers. So booktube has become a highly self-conscious community and especially within specific genre spaces. So the genres that dominate booktube are fantasy and romance, and YA fantasy. They're a cluster of genres which overlap quite considerably. And depending on the genre that a given Booktube channel tends to be devoted to, they'll become aware of each other, they'll watch each other's videos, and then they'll decide to produce content together. Mm -hmm. And so you have conversational videos about a book or about books in general or about their lives as readers. But the most basic form of the Booktube video is an individual face and the cover of the book on screen next to their face. So it's a book and a face. (laughs) So I've started calling it book face. And what's going on there often is that you as a viewer are invited to connect with this human being, this model reader. And the cover of the book and the human face are really juxtaposed in an interesting way. And if you take a transcript of what the BookTuber is saying, again, it varies from BookTuber to BookTuber, but often it's not particularly substantive. These are often folks who have never studied literature, say, so they don't really have a critical vocabulary uh, other than this is how it seemed to me. So it's a, a connection to that individual and the experience that they had of the book. So it really personalizes criticism is the way to put it in a profound way and i and i guess they it's funny if you're thinking of in antecedents then sure like a capsule review in some newspaper or magazine would be somewhat close uh, although really the personality of the critic the booktuber is all the more important because that's what drives subscribers to their channel the most successful of them have very engaging personalities they have very engaging delivery styles that's being mixed in there and i guess that's somewhat analogous to a writing style Mm -hmm. that you might find in print but
1: But maybe more directly to the kind of parasocial relationships that are associated with like social media influencers and podcasters like this Sort of digital media ecosystem that is emerging around personality
4: as the driving force. In fact, the two, as far as I can tell, of course, the the parameters of this phenomenon are hard Mm -hmm. to find. But as far as I can tell, the most successful booktubers right now, one is named Haley Pham, P-H-A-M. She is in her early 20s and she has 2.6 million followers. Wow. So when she wants to talk about a book, hundreds of thousands of people hear what she has to say about it. So she directly moves markets for books. Mm-hmm. But she started as a lifestyle blogger. So mm-hmm. her blog, her vlog, her vlog used to be about being a teenager in America. When she was really good at it and she developed enormous following. And then much to I'm sure the publishers are delighted, realized yeah. that like what she's most interested in now are books. And so for the past few years, all of her content is book centric. Mm-hmm. So that reinforces the idea that yes, in fact, literally in that case, right? we're talking about somebody who didn't say much about books when she was in high school and was huge on YouTube. But now she's gotten a little older and she's really interested in books. And she talks about uh, books of a certain kind uh, mm-hmm. that tend not to make it into college syllabi, popular books. So I do think that's very much what's going on here is that the booktuber whose face and upper body is right there on the screen. You have a parasocial relationship to them. I think that's a good way of putting it. And then if you're willing to sign up and be a patron via Patreon of a given BookTuber, right. then maybe you'll be given access to a sort of dedicated Discord server for the little communities that they start to create around their channel and then they also probably have an instagram a bookstagram account (laughs) they also are on goodreads so you can follow them there so you get a, a a kind of synergistic combination of various platforms to the end of creating a kind of booktuber brand Mm
1: -hmm. So just yesterday, I talked to Laura McGrath, Mm -hmm. and we were talking in particular about literary agencies. And one of the things she pointed out was that in both the narration studio or or the freelance narrator and the literary agency, almost everybody is an English major, right? With at Mm -hmm. least an undergraduate degree in probably english or comparative literature or something in literary studies and oftentimes an mfa or an ma or a phd right so the vocabulary of criticism which is taught in the academy permeates the narration industry as well as literary agency and obviously there are other things that start to influence there and it's not like the methods are perfectly analogous but they are clearly built on top of one another what interests me about what you just said is it sounds as though that is not the case defiantly not the case with booktube that they are creating their critical apparatus almost wholesale independently of the academy or the sort of existing infrastructures of criticism. Is that, is that right? And then if that's so, like, what is idiosyncratic about it? How does it depart from what we might more generally understand as criticism?
4: Sure. Yeah. Again, we're talking about hundreds, if not thousands of channels here. And so inevitably on the margins, certain booktubers have differentiated themselves by having academic training. And they tend to have very small channels, <laughs> but ones that I, I very much like to watch because mm-hmm. I'll, I'll learn something. But it's true that if I were to make just based on observation, uh, a huge generalization about booktubers in general, I would say that they are almost to a person college educated. So that already distinguishes them in, from the population at large, but not English majors. And you'll become aware that somebody is an IT person or they are a dental hygienist in one case. This is the folks who don't have enough followers to make a living from it. It's not really a a space for English majors per se, and you really don't hear much of the sort of apparatus of narrative theory and all the sort of critical terminologies that you tend to hear in a classroom. If you're me and if you're in a bad mood, you regret that and you're just like, God, please take an English class. Mm-hmm. But it's true that there's an emerging kind of I don't know, lexicon. And mm-hmm. remember, they all watch each other. So you get things that are easy to decode. These are not highly technical terms. The key ones are acronyms. TBR is huge, to be read, the TBR mm-hmm. pile, DNF. Did not finish is key, a key term. You know, there are certain writers who are auto buy writers, which means that you don't even bother to read reviews. You buy the next book, what we would call characterization. They call it character work. Oh, this novelist does good character work. They do have POV. So POV is an important distinction. Certain books are slow burn books. Certain readers are mood readers. Readers go into reading slumps and then you need advice about how to get out of a reading slump. I
1: might watch for that alone.
4: (laughs) (laughs) So it's just like the lingo it's, there's nothing, you know, hard to decode about it. But what you don't get is a lot of sophisticated, formal discussion of literary works. And in fact, one thing you never see, and it's very telling is text on the screen. Hmm. So again, on the margins, they might read a sentence Mm -hmm. from the book. But what you're never getting is what I do, like when I'm PowerPointing in lecture, uh, when I'm teaching. Of course, I've got the passage that I'm talking about on the screen, and then I might highlight certain parts of it. But basically, the text has disappeared. What you mostly get is the face and the book cover, and then generalizations about the book.
1: So this is a complete escape from new criticism and from close reading in some ways.
4: Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. We're in the realm of a certain kind of reader response Mm -hmm. and very broad generalizations about the form of the book, if they're there at all. Mm -hmm. This was first person I connected with the first person narrator or this was a third person narr- narrative and i had trouble identifying. <laughs> so
1: that leads to i think a very natural question co- coming out of your last book mm-hmm. which is to to what extent is your interest in booktube a kind of extension of your interest in, in the emergence of genre and mm-hmm. genre criticism and genre wars potentially. <laughs> and, yeah. and is part of what's replacing form in the the sort of booktube and book talk genre and, and a kind of loose set of formal distinctions associated therewith.
4: Yeah, that sounds right. That sounds right. I mean there's a great sort of indulgence in love for certain genre patterns although there too they can become self-conscious about something seeming too familiar and then their term for that is tropey this, <laughs> this is a tropey. this is a tropey fantasy novel <laughs> I mean, all, all, in, in a sense all fantasy novels post tolkien Right. Or tropey to some degree, the quest, you know, or whatever. <sighs> just could to list the plot points that you're likely to encounter. But I guess in some cases it can go too far. And then it gets noticed and discussed. But yeah, it's funny. The question of genre usually is answered, it, it structures the very existence of the channels. A, a given BookTuber, it'll become quite obvious what kind of books they like to talk about. And as I said, the fantasy, romance, and YA fantasy are the dominant ones. Mm -hmm. But if you look hard enough, you do find there are channels devoted to crime fiction. There are Mm -hmm. channels devoted to horror fiction or primarily to horror fiction. And there are channels devoted to literary fiction. They are there. Again, they top out, as far as I can tell, at about like forty or 50,000 subscribers. Mm -hmm. But there they are talking pretty interestingly about pension or whatever. Mm-hmm. So you do find that if that's what you're looking for. That's a certain mode. So yeah, like the spirit with which I look at these things, first of all, I'm always, it's always just a crude spirit of discovery. Cause I'm always like, oh God, who knew, who knew a, that this existed. Maybe I heard that it existed and then you dive in and you're like, and then you just start of start contemplating the scale of mm-hmm. this world. And it's quite extraordinary how vibrant this world is, even if it does not, for the most part in any way, respond to what I like and what I respond to in literary criticism and literary scholarship. It's just largely not there. Again, there are exceptions, but it's just largely not there. But it is interesting to contemplate it as a kind of inevitably in the the situation that our discipline is in, It's the other of academic literary criticism in so many ways. Most of them that are disappointing to me because I happen to love what we do. I feel outrage that the rest of the world doesn't see when you're reading a a great piece of academic literary criticism. That's like Mm a complete high to me and the rest of the world doesn't see it. So that's what I love. And so inevitably I'm encountering a kind of other. And I'm always maybe slightly irritated, but slightly fascinated. And then also happy to think that people are getting so much from books and are using books in this way, that there's certainly uh, worse evils in the world than this, so I don't get too upset by it. I I find it interesting and it's an interesting way of contemplating what's going on our side of it. Yeah. You see this whole other world of books.
1: It pushes back against a narrative that we often face that books and reading are obsolescent. Oh, yeah. That sometimes when you look at the specific spaces of, say, university presses or legacy book reviews, you know, you can fall into believing that might be true. But there's this other culture that is richly literary, even if not in exactly the same terms we would prefer. Yeah and that reading is still happening and it's happening i think one of the things that really distinguishes maybe booktube book talk it's happening amongst young people
4: yes yes so if you could again you, you don't want to make too many strong generalizations but yes booktube skews young book book talk uh, skews even younger so this is where the youth are that's true what was going on in my amazon book literature in the age of amazon was a way of contemplating literature outside of the context of the academy. That's what that book's all about. Uh, What is literature as sponsored by that corporation? And it's not what we do with books. And here too, yes, although in a slightly different way, because I'm interested in people actually actively discussing and consuming these books and the evidence that one can find of that online. But there too, it's all but completely independent of the academy. I contemplate it half with horror and half with fascination and appreciation. Neither in the case of Amazon nor in the case of BookTube have I managed to completely resolve my deep ambivalence about these phenomena. Mm. And so my only option has been to just let that ambivalence play without Mm. trying to adopt a falsely populist like rah, rah, rah. This is so great on the one hand or just a purely snobby These people are ruining literature on the other. Neither of those options seems particularly viable to me. Mm -hmm. And so I just rapidly alternate between the two positions. (laughs) (laughs) Dialectically, Yeah, I know. It's called the dialectic.
1: Yeah. Yeah, One of the things I wanted to ask about, as you mentioned in your Amazon book, in Everything and Less, there is this real interest in the corporate architecture and even a kind of corporate mythology or mystification that is part of the Amazon model and that is interwoven with the literary and the fictive and mm-hmm. the influence that clearly fiction has had on Jeff Bezos, among others. I, I wondered to what extent that corporate world is governing Two. And how to think about whether emergent or initiative, this infrastructure is intertwined with mass market publishing, but also maybe with Google, like what is this sort of corporate world Doing with book talk is it making book talk happen? Is it colonizing book talk? Are these things synthetic in some way or symbiotic in some way?
4: I would say, in the case, let's start start with book talk because that's overwhelmingly more important to the publishing industry than BookTube. Mm-hmm. So I was just watching a book talk video that has sixteen million views, wow. and it's the one that takes the form of it just says these books blew me away. And then you see the covers in sequence, and that's it. 16 million. So they're way into that. And I I don't think that they generated that content in any particular way. I really do think that this is organic. However, they are doing everything they can to harness it. And I haven't seen one yet, but apparently many Barnes and Nobles and physical bookstores have a book talk table at the front of the store. Yeah. Because a a little temporary mini canon emerges on book talk. These are the books that book talkers are are Ah. book talking about, and then you so you walk in there, and there they are. Half of them are by this author, Colleen Hoover, Mm
1: -hmm. who most of
4: us haven't heard of, but who is just phenomenal. All our students have, yeah, uh, yeah, certainly phenomenally popular among young uh, women readers. So that's happening on that sense, but in the world of BookTube, where you. Merely have 100,000 people watching any given video. <laughs> Merely. There, if a tuber becomes big enough, the publisher will, will start sending them advanced reader copies, hoping for a mention, because that's easy. Yeah. So that, that's like t- timid efforts at yeah. colonization and roping them in, into the PR system, the promotion system. But as far as I can tell... Google, the thing that, I mean, this is sort of bizarrely true about Amazon and books. Books are very roughly speaking, it's hard to know at this point, but maybe 5% of the business of Amazon, which is just sells everything, of course. Right. And then even the, their retail uh, element is now one part of a huge, larger enterprise. But at least it started as a bookstore. And so books are in its DNA. That's just not the case for Google. And if there's a certain... I don't know, a certain kind of popular populist autonomy to booktube. It stems from the fact that even as huge as the numbers look to us academics Mm -hmm. within the larger context of YouTube, this is a tiny phenomenon. It really just goes to show how relatively small the world of books is even in, in its most populist form. form. So there's, I know the, the, the king of YouTube, Mr. Beast. Mm-hmm. Um, only mainly of interest to children, um, but he has hundred and fifty-two million right. subscribers. He makes tens of millions of dollars in payout from YouTube every year. So w- when you when you have that on the map, I mean, granted, that's the biggest, but there are yoga channels with fourteen million followers. Mm-hmm. So the funny thing about looking at BookTube is that in the context of YouTube, it's like nothing. Mm-hmm. It's not worth it to Google or Alphabet the overarching corporation to care that much Mm -hmm. about this. It's just small potatoes. The funny thing is that it's huge within the book industry, that it's a significant scale within the world of books. Mm -hmm. And then compared to think of the print run of a academic literary Mm -hmm. studies monograph, uh, or the readership, even of something like critical inquiry Mm -hmm. compared to that, it's huge. And so you have these sort of great this kind of like disorienting <laughs> questions of scale that come to the fore when you start thinking about something mm-hmm. like Book
1: i i would presume even when you start to talk about the hottest authors in literary fiction i mm-hmm. i mentioned to you that i, I was teaching garth greenwell recently mm-hmm. and was talking to my students about the sort of phenomena of his first novel mm-hmm. but i'm sure in scale comparison, <laughs> even the most successful works of literary fiction, their sales are going to be dwarfed by a lot of these romance YA. Yes. And if that is what's being talked about on booktube and book talk, there is going to be this disproportion.
4: Oh yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And there's a way, if you think from the perspective of a booktuber who wants more subscribers, like maybe you you want to monetize it. Yeah. And you need to get, plausibly, you need to get above a couple hundred thousand subscribers, mm-hmm. maybe closer to 300,000 subscribers to start making something of a yeah. living from it. The books that you choose to feature on your channel are going to matter dramatically mm-hmm. because people are going to be searching YouTube for something on the book that they're the, interested in the or book. the author that they're interested in. Yeah. And so your choice of objects to discuss on your channel matters dramatically. Mm -hmm. If nobody's ever heard of the book, then that's not going to draw viewers to your channel. That's why the literary fiction booktube channels are relatively niche. Although again, think of this question of scale here, the bookamist He's one sort of literary booktuber, very clever guy. I think he's an Italian graduate student. I I could be wrong about that. But in any case, but 40 or 50,000 subscribers to discussions of the latest advanced work of literary fiction that has piqued his interest. That's pretty significant. That's a significant presence for literary fiction in that world, but the real attention and then pay out it goes to people who are talking about Colleen Hoover or Brandon Sanderson, a big favorite on booktube, hugely famous, popular fantasy writers that in my experience, a lot of my colleagues have never heard of.
1: Yeah, exactly. Let's go in that direction first. I, I want to come back to the question of the financialization of the self that is taking place mm-hmm. on booktube and Talk and this sort of gig economy element, but mm-hmm. to what extent have you been tempted? to operationalize your research into book talk in the classroom or booktube in the classroom, recognizing that many of your students, probably their association with reading and literature and the sort of the passion that they might bring to that is fueled maybe by booktube and book talk, but Hmm. also by fantasy and YA and a set of thriving genres for young people, that may be unrecognizable, like you said, to most of your colleagues. Yeah. Have you thought about trying to find a way to fuse that with your desire to teach them, as we talked about earlier, the kind of traditions of literary criticism that you find enthralling that excite you when you read an academic monograph?
4: Yeah, no, I mean, that's a great idea. I haven't done that in a thoroughgoing way, although I would like to think through what it would mean to more robustly bring it into the classroom. As of now, I just tend to blow their minds by having heard of it. Yeah, (laughs) You know what I mean? They're just amazed that I've heard of Taylor Jenkins Reid and Emily Henry and Colleen Hoover and Brandon Sanderson and all of these writers that sort of are Present to mind to them, but which they've learned. its is very traditional in some ways. They've learned that that's not what they're up to mm-hmm. in the literature classroom, and they sort of naturally segregate it. And so they're always pleasantly disoriented when a professor has any idea of that world that some of them. But it's complicated because I, I think that even the popular literary world is so fragmented mm-hmm. that in any given literature class, Sure, they'll be the ones who are like, oh, my God, you've heard of Colleen Hoover, Mm -hmm. professor. But then there are others in the classroom who also haven't heard of, you know what I mean? Because that's just not their thing. Maybe they went high culture, like in high school, and so Mm -hmm. they have vague contempt for all that. And here they are in your classroom, and they're not here to discuss that kind of thing.
1: Uh, Or maybe they're coming out of graphic novels or film.
4: yeah, Yeah, exactly. There are so many different literary and paraliterary subcultures that it's hard to know and then we can talk about the question of gender so if we're talking about colleen hoover taylor jenkins reed emily henry these massively best-selling uh, sort of upper grade romance fiction the vast majority uh, of their readers are women like 80 percent of them by all accounts are women and so the guys insofar as they're in an english class at Stanford, it's incredibly weighted toward yeah. women in the classroom. But insofar as they're there, they have never, no idea, mm-hmm. well, most of them have no idea who these writers are. And so you're dealing with a certain kind of, it's, again, the each fragment, if you look closely enough, it might be huge because <laughs> it has global access. So right. a lot of people around the world are watching books, these booktube channels. Some of the booktubers themselves are not located in the United States, although they're all speaking in English. But to try to uh, operationalize it in the classroom would be interesting because there would be enough students in that classroom who themselves would have to be taught what mm-hmm. this is. And so I've had the simpler thought like, wow, you know, rather than my next book, it's not going to be a book. It's just going to be a series of videos. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write lectures and, you know, record them and release them. And that's my next book. Mm-hmm. Ah, I think it's my a way maybe to go.
0: My own as, booktube
4: channel. As somebody who has, has <laughs> by and 12 large- 12 followers. Yeah.
1: <laughs> move, moved his, lo- his sort of long form projects from thinking about them in terms of books into thinking about them in terms of podcasts. You're, you're going to get plenty of sympathy from me there.
4: <laughs> yeah, no, no. It's, it is something to contemplate. Different, to use the crude term, delivery systems for what we do. Mm-hmm. It's definitely worth contemplating. And I definitely find myself contemplating it because of COVID. I had to make a certain amount of video content for my mm-hmm. classes. It just got me like, so, oh yeah, you could just keep doing this.
1: Yeah. The technical learning curve daunting at first.
4: Yeah. And you're like, wait, this, you can do this. Right you mm-hmm. know and again if you spend enough time on youtube you discover that there are some fairly high-minded channels out there they're not mm-hmm. what i would call booktube channels but they're you know people who have like hey i have a computer mm-hmm. i have a subscription to one of those services that'll give you images to use mm-hmm. as background while you're talking yeah. and so you have in de- fully independent documentary f- filmmakers there's one I love called The Fall of Civilizations podcast. It's amazing. And it has 1.5 million followers. He just takes you through the history of a given civilization and then how it fell. There's it's like the pathos of the fall is, uh-huh. is, is awesome. And he's got a great delivery. And you know, it's like, wow, a lot more of us could do similar things. hmm where that would leave the classroom of course is another question and where that would leave the academic monograph and the Mm -hmm. academic journal is another question and scholarly books
1: i value those things very much even if i don't choose to create them i depend upon them yeah
4: Yeah. (laughs) yeah and there's nothing like a truly brilliant book, since we were, you're were talking about Guillory cultural capital for me, when yeah. I read that in grad school, I was just, yeah. my mind was blown yeah, and it, it, it guided certain aspects at least of my thinking ever since. And so there's not, there's no replacement for that.
1: Yeah, I agree. It's an yeah. and not or question. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to come back to something that struck me earlier as we were talking is just how clearly tube follows the kind of financialization of the self, Mm -hmm. neoliberal rationality, gigification that has been documented by people like Wendy Brown and Melinda Cooper and others. And maybe this is one of the the ways to push back against it, right? Is this a kind of model for capturing a kind of readerly and writerly labor Mm -hmm. and devaluing it?
4: (laughs) Yeah, I think that's... Certainly something to contemplate. I've noticed just because I've been observing this for a few months now, several months now, actually, that they will be a booktuber and they'll have managed to amass 20,000 subscribers and they get ambitious. Mm -hmm. And the way you get more subscribers is you have to upload more frequently than you might want to really a good idea to have a, a video uploaded every week maybe a couple times a week, if you can manage it. And what you notice, if you're paying attention is you're seeing people who get more and more exhausted Mm -hmm. um, as the weeks go by, because remember what they're doing is reporting on their reading. And so they've got to read a book as preparation and then Mm -hmm. they've got to have something to say about the book, often very little, Mm -hmm. but nonetheless, they need to have recorded some kind of authentic Mm -hmm. relation to that book. And it's self evidently really exhausting. And it's like going to graduate
1: school. Yeah. yeah, no,
4: many of them end up talking about like feeling under pressure to produce more content. And okay, yeah, I didn't really read this one, I, I listened to it on audiobook. And so you start to see that labor starts to become self evident. And then this one guy I follow, he had to take a mental health break. He's hugely successful, he's like almost a half a million subscribers to his channel. But like he just was, it was just literally driving him mad, trying to keep up with his sense of how often he had to deliver content. Mm-hmm. And then I think the perfect instance of what you're talking about, and this is a quite marginal phenomenon, but it is so telling there, there's this genre of booktube video. A booktuber will set up a live feed. It's something they recorded and edited. In this case they'll set up a live feed and it's called a productivity sprint <laughs> and they and their followers they'll chat for a few minutes and then they all do work together mm-hmm. so the person on the screen is not saying anything they're sitting that they at their laptop or their computer typing mm-hmm. away or they're reading and they're doing work which i don't know which is kind of extraordinary Yeah,
1: as you say, the stuff they're reading and recommending is presumably mostly associated with leisure. Yes. These these are books that people consume because they're enjoyable, but it it has been converted into work by the phenomena of booktube itself.
4: Yeah. And there's a whole genre of, if you look at the still images associated with booktube, like again and again, you're either seeing a face, and behind them, like you, right mm-hmm. now, behind them is their library. Mm-hmm. So there's always many books, and then there's this really favorite shot that so many of them do. They're carrying a huge stack of books, and it's almost going to topple out of their arms. It's so <laughs> many books, and then there's a genre of uh, video. It's called the book haul. Uh-huh. Uh, the book haul is you acquired a bunch of books ah, is- and and you can see why this would be a popular from their standpoint you haven't read you haven't you don't claim to have read them yet mm-hmm. but you go through them it's like an unboxing you go through <laughs> them one by one and you talk about how much you're looking forward to reading them mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but the, but the, just the manyness the overload uh, and then there are videos out there on like how to read more yeah here are my techniques this is why I'm able to read 120 books a year. Mm-hmm. It's because I do XYZ. I train myself that if I have 15 minutes, you actually can do a little bit of read. Don't tell yourself that you can't use that 15 minutes to read, especially if you've got your book on an electronic device. There it is. Do it. Use the 15 minutes. And if you get into the habit of doing that, you'll, you know what I mean? So like little practical tips yeah. where, where the end is read more, uh-huh. And only occasionally do they pause and say, Wait, why? If this is for fun, why this sense of obligation mm-hmm. to respond to the muchness of yeah. contemporary literary production? And it makes sense from the booktubers' perspective, mm-hmm. because of course, that's how they're going to have content mm-hmm. to produce. And that's why they, over time, and as they get more and more popular, they become abnormal readers. And the whole premise is that they're a model reader, mm-hmm. but they can't really sustain it because the conditions of their reading are changing because it's becoming professionalized in, in that way. And so they are, they are or feel obliged to read much more than a normal leisure time reader would feel and, and then they give advice to others about how they can read more Yeah.
1: first of all i love like the performative bibliophilia <laughs> like, yeah. i feel like that might be something that we especially in the age of zoom can share with the, yeah
4: you know, no absolutely yeah the, the, yeah. the bookshelves yeah. in the back in the in in the backdrop yeah. and not all of them do it of course but that's the er form of the booktubers, it's somebody sitting in front of their bookshelves. Yeah. And then as a matter of course, you're looking at the books on their bookshelves and then because they choose which ones are going to be. Yeah. They know which
1: ones. I know which ones are up there, Yeah. yeah.
4: And and, (laughs) in their case, if it's a fantasy centric channel, it's like their favorite, Mm -hmm. you know, series will be, and they'll have beautifully matched editions of whatever (laughs) series they like behind their head. Then that cues you as a viewer to what, what their sensibility is
1: to what extent is this audience a kind of cannibalistic one by which i mean is everybody who consumes BookTube obviously yourself accepted as this is a research project? Mm-hmm. But are they there because they are themselves imagining themselves as BookTubers? And so the BookTubers they watch, you talked about these videos that are about being more productive, about mm-hmm. going through the work that it takes to create videos once or twice a week. Is, is that because they know their audience is? by and large other booktubers and aspiring booktubers or who who is watching these things in 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 large numbers
4: a really good question you could there are so many channels out there some of them with 100 followers 100 subscribers that you can start to think oh wow yeah there is like a perfectly circular economy here of either booktubers or would be booktubers. And that's true to some degree, but at least for the popular ones, the scale is too large to really imagine that's what's going on. What is maybe going on though, and this is the interesting thing. What, what I ask myself is to what degree does watching these channels stand in for reading the books? Mm. You know what I mean? So you're yeah. having a mediated experience of a given book. There's no way most of us, even us academics, couldn't read as many books as these booktubers are reading in order to generate content, but no doubt some of them inspire people to purchase the book and to read it. Mm -hmm. I think that's certainly the main idea. You Mm -hmm. should read this too. But you have to believe given the, just the amount of booktube content that's out there, that these are 20, 25, 30 minute videos. You start thinking like, oh, wow, to a certain degree that itself takes a certain amount of time that might otherwise be used reading. And of course, this is all speculative. I have no way of getting any real knowledge of this, but to a certain degree, if there's enough booktube content, by definition, it starts to compete with actually reading, which would be highly ironic. Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) But that does seem to be sort of part of our sort of gigified and attention starved. Mm Economy. I, I was just thinking when you describe watching the thirty-minute video instead of reading the book itself. I was thinking of my own trajectory as a sports fan, where I I used to watch several NBA and MLB games uh, a week. I now watch probably a dozen a year, but I still listen to podcasts on my way to and from work. Right? <laughs> right? Have have so that. That I, yeah. yeah substituting the actual primary source, the game with commentary on games that I haven't seen.
4: (laughs) Yep. Yeah, Yeah. no, absolutely. And that's part of a massive societal function, like large scale reflexivity. Mm -hmm. And just the function of commentary on everything, everywhere. That's Twitter too. If I'm really busy, I get a bank shot of the news through the people that I'll tune into on Twitter to get their impressions of the news. Not yeah. the news itself. So yeah. I think that there are many versions of this out there, and, and to some degree, that's probably happening within this space too. That yeah. sure, certain people are being motivated to go out and get a book and read it. There's plenty of evidence for that. On the yeah. other hand, you couldn't possibly read every book that that a popular booktuber right. is is reading. And this rings true. I used to work at the New York Review of Books just out of college. I've always thought a lot about that publication and. If you're familiar with it, a lot of the reviews in the New York Review book s- stand in for reading the book.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
4: that's sort of their form. That's why it can be actually so wonderful to read it because it really does inform you what the gist of the book is. Yeah. And w- one form of New York review really recounts the argument of the book for seven eighths of the review. And then they, yeah. and then the reviewer comes in the final eighth and opines a bit. Or adds their side of things. And so something similar surely is going on uh, online as well, a kind of mediated stand in for the actual experience. But we shouldn't think, I guess my point is that we shouldn't think that's entirely new uh, mm-hmm. or that it's slowly. And NYRB is an amazing publication doing incredible work in terms of jo- joining academia to a slightly larger audience. To
1: sort of- make a similar point. I can think about like American Literary History, which is one of the premier journals in my field, right? They have recently started publishing online-only reviews of academic books very clearly because they know even people in the field are not keeping up with it enough to read all of the monographs right. that are being produced. And yeah. so they they have made this easy way right, to sort yeah. of... Yeah, to just
4: stay current. Yeah, right. no, I the think thousand
1: it's, word version yeah. of yeah.
4: No, I think it's it's brilliant. And then we can step way back. And many people have worked on various aspects of this. I'm thinking of like people like Leah Price. Like the whole history of excerpting and skimming, and like whole thinkers have had their influence by via hearsay. And if you're like deep into the reality of every sentence of Foucault. Mm-hmm. You understand that Foucault in a a broader discussion might be a kind of a hearsay summary of Foucault that notoriously happened to, say, Derrida, all the sort of complex post-structuralists. They become highly simplified. And so this dynamic, there's nothing particular about it to the online situation. I think that's great. I've often just observed how inefficient our discipline is just in terms of like information flow. It really is hard to know what's out there that's relevant. And we've all been through this in various ways. That's true for a research project. So you have to figure out what something is called even to try to begin to search it. But even more so in terms of like current production, like what criticism is coming out from whom, and, and I think that what ALH is doing is fantastic. Marginally, no doubt, moving the needle so more people are aware of stuff that's out there.
2: Next up, the book that was the most for me ever in my entire life, The Love Hypothesis by Ellie Hazelwood. I know that this blew up on TikTok for like a week and absolutely everyone read it in a week. And so I was like a little bit late to that, but uh, wow.
1: This is Hayley Pham, the booktuber Mark mentioned, one of the biggest on the platform. She's doing a month in review episode, covering 10 books in 16 minutes, while also finding time to plug her merch and do some zoom-in react shots of her dog.
2: This is now one of my top three romance books, and out of this entire year I have read at least 85% romance, so that is a big fat deal. I have never read a book where from page two I was like, yeah. I'm gonna love this book. It was a pure serotonin experience from page two to the the end of the book. Like, there was not one part that I didn't love it.
1: Haley has the potential to become the new Oprah, dramatically moving the needle on book sales by giving her stamp of approval. And Allie Hazelwood, the pseudonymous author whose debut novel she's reviewing, personifies the transformation of literary media on the production end. Hazelwood was recruited by an agent scavenging for talent on the fanfiction megatrove archive of our own.
2: Apparently, this started off as a Reylo fanfiction, which is Ray and uh, whatever that guy's name is from Star Wars. I'm not a Star Wars fan. I'm sorry. The
1: agent persuaded Hazelwood to adapt her Star Wars-themed stories to a setting she was familiar with as a graduate student in neuroscience.
2: What an amazing book, and I really like the graduate school setting as well. So, uh, five out of five.
1: Marketed under the hashtag Steminist, The Love Hypothesis became a TikTok sensation, an overnight bestseller, prequel to one of those rare six-figure book deals Tom Lutz alluded to a couple episodes ago. And then a movie deal with the production team that made the most recent adaptation of Jane Austen's Persuasion.
2: Miss Allie Hazelwood, I will be automatically buying every book you write from here on out. Maybe this means that I like fanfiction, I don't know. I I actually did not grow up on Wattpad as a kid, but this didn't feel like bad writing at all. Like it still felt like great writing, it's just I just love this book so much. Oh my gosh. It's butterflies from like start to finish. And it's so
1: weird. It's hard I to know to whether out Fam's out. reference to Wattpad is a mistake of fact a presumption that all fanfic originates on Wattpad. Or a critical claim, her recognition as a voluminous reader of elements in Hazelwood's novel that are durably associated with a platform on which they proliferate. Whatever the case, Pham's review of the love synthesis, including the offhand jab at Wattpad, indicates how these emergent literary media are intertwined with each other, but also vaguely competitive influencers are rarely able to reproduce their clout from one platform to the next despite the evident cross-pollination so i expect many of you are asking what the hell is wattpad to answer that question i turn to sarah brulette professor of english at Carleton university like my girl she has repeatedly drawn our attention to institutions like unesco And systems, like mobile-only reading applications, that influence what is and what is not available for people to read. Our discussion of EdTech's failure to, to synthesize platform and content, I think, very directly segues into what I wanted to talk to you about wattpad (laughs) this is one of the really telling things about your essay on wattpad is how strong the synthesis of platform and content is within that system in ways that are are, our surveillance are still very frightening but are also clearly working at least insofar as they are encouraging readers to engage with authors and authors to produce and for the platform to flourish and so i guess i have to start by having you explain because i assume for much of our audience this will not be obvious what is wattpad and how does it work
5: okay wattpad is a private company that is an online platform for reading and writing basically and the way that it works is they invite authors to upload freely content most of it is serialized and they encourage people to post weekly and the benefit to authors is that they get a lot of feedback on their work from readers or users of the platform. Users of the platform can also access most of the content for free and it has millions and millions of users. And there are a variety of paid programs. So authors can make a little bit of money using the site, but from what I can gather, it's not very much and users can pay a little bit to have an enhanced experience or there's certain content that's only available if you pay. But they make most of their money from advertising that they host on the platform. And they also line authors up and line up successful content with like deals to be transformed into other kinds of media. That's something they want to do increasingly. So they feed content to Netflix, and they also have a publishing division of their own now, but they also make deals with major publishing houses mediating on behalf of their authors and taking a cut of that. And then they have their own publishing wing Wattpad books where they're putting out actually quite a lot of titles very carefully selected they also have a whole bunch of proprietary software in different areas that they're developing and they have a program where they mentor writers so they select talent based on user data and then they give them more concrete advice and they can work with editors and develop projects and they have talked all along basically about automating the production of books like with sufficient information sufficient data could they basically produce an entire title via machine so they were talking about doing this long before open ai and the chatbots.
1: i got sidetracked by one of the things you said there that i don't think was in your piece which is that they are actually acting as literary agents for writers and then taking a cut as an agent would.
5: Yeah. They help negotiate deals for the writers with Simon & Schuster or Netflix. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in effect, although some of the writers also have agents, (laughs) so they're Mm -hmm. like another agent. Right. And so they, and they also don't, disclose any information about how these deals work or whatever so I found mm-hmm. it very difficult and, right. and I've written to a lot of authors just directly just to see if there's anyone who would want to share information with me but they can't they seem like they sign non-disclosure agreements and a very yeah. walled
1: garden it sounds like that.
5: yeah yeah and then other authors I know personally who've uploaded to Wattpad for free they don't Really have any information about this, and either because they haven't been selected for any paid programs, and it just seems like it's very hard to find out, and the terms are often changing, also.
1: So you said millions of active users. So I, I was talking to uh, Mark McGurl and about particularly BookTube and BookTalk, and and one of the th- questions I asked him was to, to what extent is this a kind of circular economy where the booktubers are all watching each other, responding to each other, all of the tropes of the booktube and the book talk, are circling through a community of, of users who are both creators and audience, oftentimes more or less simultaneously. To what extent is that true of Wattpad? Like of those millions of users, how many of them are writing and producing for the platform or are the vast majority of them just browsers, readers. But as you said, in the context of this platform, also then editors respondents creating in real time reception.
5: To be honest, I don't think I know the answer to that question in terms of like specific numbers. I can right. only guess. My guess is that most of the users are just readers and I first learned about Wattpad from my students. Like when we would talk about how they got into reading, they all said, oh, Wattpad, and I'd yeah. never heard of it. So I ended up looking it up. But I think it's a huge platform for early readers and especially for feminized mm-hmm. subjects, reading in the areas of romance, but also fantasy with romance elements, young adult fiction, these kinds of areas.
1: A lot of crossover and... with BookTube and Talk in that way too, yeah.
5: Uh, the whole industry. It is the dominant current in the industry. And that's part of what interests me about Wattpad. But yeah, I think most users are browsing, reading, and then doing, as you say, forms of fan engagement that are useful to the platform. Of course, every form of fan engagement is useful just a click or you stayed longer on one passage than another. You highlighted something. All of these things are information that they use, but it does have a pretty active fandom So, there is a lot of fan generation, not necessarily of their own writing, but of things like videos for Book Talk and tweets and Instagram posts and whatever the new social media things are. (laughs)
1: What do we call
5: those? But but yeah, that's right. That's terrible.
1: (laughs) (laughs) One of the terms that stuck. Uh, to me, was reading down. And you just made re- reference to uh, it's a lot of genre fiction, and a lot of the genres of fiction is young adult. A- and the suggestion that there is a kind of flattening of the idea of reading, that all reading is good for you, which is, you know, I, I will admit, is something I have said aloud <laughs> on more than one occasion. But I do think that platforms like YouTube, like TikTok, Wattpad, Essentially creating a mechanism for identifying what's popular and then reproducing it over and over again. So, even if one might say all reading is good for you and that there's legitimacy to all these different forms and genres, levels of difficulty, it seems likely that what these platforms are doing is homogenizing, flattening what gets produced. Is that what you're seeing from Wattpad literature?
5: I have a number of thoughts about that. I'm hesitant to say that it necessarily lends to homogenization in the long term because I think it responds to cultural trends. Like Mm -hmm. different things are always coming up. Whatever the new thing is for the hero to have, there's going to be room for variation. I want to go back to the qualitative Concept of homogenization. I don't think that's the main problem. I wouldn't want to fixate on that. I think it's that the platform extracts labor and content and mm-hmm. is about cheapening the work of right. cultural production. That is, I think, what I would focus attention on and less on the homogeneity of, because in a way, the way that democratization of access to cultural production has been sold is precisely the opposite, right? As diversification, that there has been a tremendous, and I think Mark McGurl's work discusses this really well. That you know you can get every variety of diaper eroticism; <laughs> it's yeah. not just one. So I might say something like there is apparent diversification in terms of representation and of niche sort of segmentation in the market and catering to every taste and everyone can contribute to the conversation. But that disguises a deeper homogenization in terms of the cultural desires, I think, that are being Mm. filtered through the fiction, which have to do with seeing yourself represented and a kind of therapeutic imperative to be seen. And these are all totally understandable human impulses, but that there's homogenization in terms of overarching cultural narrative of growth and development toward maturation and finding romance and these kinds of things. So I feel like it's more complicated than just homogenization, that there's a a kind of dialectic, if you will, (laughs) between this apparent diversification and this broader story and then again i think for me the primary thing is just that the purpose of it and the fact that democratization of access as everyone can participate in the culture conversation coincides with the foreclosure of the possibility of making any money from doing this work or any substantial amount of money unless you're one of the very few stars but meanwhile they have all the content Mm -hmm. so it's sort of a content machine.
1: It's a and, funnel.
5: Yeah. I don't know if it's homogenizing. I would describe it as proliferating in a way. Mm-hmm. The ideal is if it's like everything's compartmentalized and you can put a diverse array of story elements into, you know, package in order to satisfy our consumer desires or whatever. But
1: yeah. Definitely. When I was reading your piece, Claire's idea of, of decommodified labor came up over and over again, right? That there's all this, what we should identify as work going on whether it's from the authors or the readers who are responding and helping to edit these authors and to inspire these authors or the content moderators the sensitivity readers i want to talk to you about them a little bit but all this work is being done and it's creating value for the platform It's also, as you point out, it's creating value for Netflix and Simon and Schuster, where they have all this data that says, oh, this is a guaranteed hit. These few authors that are able to make the jump from Wattpad into legacy publishing or mainstream publishing come as like fully formed guaranteed hits to some extent. so it's creating value for those publishing and media platforms as well but all this other labor is happening in order to do that and it is completely uncompensated
5: yeah Um, it's uncompensated but it's also saving the publisher from having to spend as much money on marketing or editorial in terms of sorting content, like by identifying. So they're doubly saving. And I think part of what's interesting about the way decommodification of work happens in the publishing industry, and Wattpad is a really good example of this, is just all of the rhetorics around it, all of the kind of ways in which it's yes. explained and justified as even like many, many of the authors who have written for Wattpad have said in panel discussions and stuff like that, that it's primarily a hobby. It's a platform for hobbyists. It's not about making money. I don't do this because I want to get rich. All the these kinds of things.
1: Self-actualization, self-care. You yeah. Know. You point out in the piece, right, that that these rhetorics are developing out of the Oprah book club. This work is benefiting me in ways that are not monetary, and therefore I do not need to be compensated.
5: And that it's also care for others. So that's a, it's like self-care, but it's also care work. And you're doing it because you care about your fans, and they need you, and they benefit from what you provide which is this experience of having their lives validated so there's this whole cycle of Mm -hmm.
0: justification
5: that's at so many levels
1: the decommodification becomes moral or ethical right the ugliness of the the market then becomes an excuse not to be compensated for one's labor so i did definitely want to ask about the practices of criticism on the platform. I think the two questions, and we can take these in any order or together, depending on how you want to think about it, but essentially one is, are there sort of critical practices that are developing on Wattpad that you see as idiosyncratic to it? And then. Two is the notion of the sensitivity reader, right? Like how, how could you understand the sort of critical task of content moderation within this specifically literary environment, that literary culture is the kind of aestheticized part of Wattpad. And yet it sounds as though they are doing the kind of content moderation that happens on social media, though maybe on slightly different terms. And so those people are essentially critics of a type? Do they shape a way of thinking about criticism that is specific to Wattpad or that is capturing something about our contemporary moment in critical practice?
5: Like these are tremendously difficult questions and I haven't really thought this through. There are probably a couple of things that are worth noting. One thing that I've noticed is actually a hostility toward literary, a hostility toward aestheticization. It's like pronounced, it's, it's a sort of anti-literary disposition on Wattpad. And when I've heard Wattpad authors on the many panels or blog, writing on blog posts or on podcasts, talking about their background and their training, the vast majority say that they have never taken any creative writing courses, that they're self-taught. They don't read literature if they read at all. They say they learn from television, that it's like more serial drama, that they're inspired by, or that's what they're trying to write is a written version of this serial drama. So I think that if there's a form of criticism, it's a kind of hostility toward the institutions of accumulation of cultural capital and the, the platform of course benefits from this construal, not that it's invalid but it, right. it is serviceable to Wattpad, mm-hmm. to have people believe that this is the alternative to the traditional mechanisms for access to which the are elitist world,
1: presumably which yeah. are
5: inaccessible they're just they're inconceivable right because it's just a fact actually <laughs> that if you want to work in the publishing industry at any level not that those are good jobs either at the entry level you have to have been to an elite school and probably have good contacts already and be from a family with connections and all this kind of shiz and probably come from wealth so you can live on very little for a time blah 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 in you know very all expensive this stuff.
1: cities yeah
5: in very expensive cities and this stuff is all Totally true, right? But I think that it tends to amplify those facts tend to lend to this anti-literary disposition across the site. And the questions that tend to be asked of authors don't have that much to do with the aesthetics of the text. Although, of course, there's always like mechanical things. The, the kind of criticism that's practiced on Wattpad has more to do with questions of representation, the accuracy of a representation, thing, things like that. It's, I don't know, it's very, how to put this? No, I'm not, I was going to say something about how much of the work of writing for the site and stuff like that has to do with production of the text and like with basically paratexts, like mm-hmm. choosing a cover, right. choosing a title, like how do you describe your main characters, like these Doing these social kinds media of
1: things. promotion. yeah. That-
5: yeah that kind of stuff. But I had another thought before I started talking about the anti-literary disposition. Oh yeah, it was going to be something about own voices. I, I feel like that is a big... Broader conversation that's been going on in the publishing industry for a number of years now. And if there's a form of Wattpad criticism, it's very tapped into that. So that's basically about the underrepresentation of non white authors in the publishing industry and an interest in rectifying that and providing platforms for authors who are not white to write stories and not just, you know. Not white, but also all kinds of other identities yeah. that are not of the majority. I, I think a lot of the conversation is about that, basically, mm-hmm. and about, representation
1: matters. Yeah,
5: yeah, quite a bit of I, agreement, I think, across the the Wattpad world, that it's a good thing, that it that it's it's problematic for a white writer to write non-white characters without at least consulting some other readers, other experts who might affiliate more clearly with the community, that kind of stuff. And so I feel like there's some kind of cultural conversations that Wattpad is also tapping into, and that literary criticism that goes on in the site is pitched in that way, or situated within those
1: conversations. And does that kind of crowdsourcing happen within the platform where author is trying to create character that is far from their demographic identity And they actually look to or maybe have volunteers from their readers step in and try to help them with that process.
5: Yeah, I think that's something that writers use the site for. I think they ask open questions about does this ring true for people or I want to get this right, that kind of thing.
1: i'll end with the like the sort of big question just to see where you go with it which is what does this pretend for literary criticism
4: oh what does what pretend for? (laughs) well
1: (laughs) i i I was hoping that you would fill in that blank (laughs) Uh, but i think whether it's just the, the sort of moment that we're in or the, specific, the specificity of this sort of emergent form of criticism that's taking place online on the tubes and feeds.
4: It's hard, it's hard to say. On the one hand, it can all seem like a flattening of the field. And it's a field upon which we don't necessarily compete very well. It can look like that. No doubt. And then funding agencies look in of various kinds, the administration of your institution, this and that, and they look in and they're like, what's special about what you do? It's everywhere. You know what I mean? So that, that kind of flattening of distinctions, which could be to our potential disadvantage, that's one story. That's one sort of nightmare that you can have. But there's also the possibility that this doesn't mean that much, actually to what we do that what we do is separate enough that the real pressing questions for us really are on campus it's like how many students do we have how many enrollments do we have how many majors we have all of these things that justify hiring us in given institutions and then giving us the opportunity to spend at least some of our time doing research Um, and
1: does booktube actually maybe have the potential to help that right if this is a kind of generation, uh, the viewers are by and large, teenagers, early adults, people who are in college or going to college who are developing positive associations with literature in the very broadest sense.
4: Uh Yeah, isn't it pretty to think so? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's possible. In any case, it doesn't seem something to me intrinsically horrible. Who knows whether it'll, in fact, we hoped say that the massive success of Harry Potter would create, right. would have after effects, knock-on effects in re-establishing reading.
1: <laughs> how That's wrong the, we were, yeah.
4: And then it didn't really happen because, I don't know, what happened in a lot of cases is Harry Potter, that was the only series that was worth reading. And then after Harry Potter, nothing. It's Now it's video games, video games forever. But there's, such, I don't, it's hard to see any harm in it. It's hard for me to see how the popularity of books online, however relative that popularity is compared to what we do, it's pretty huge. Mm -hmm. How that blows back to our disadvantage. I don't know. I I don't see it. Mm -hmm. I don't see it unless some state legislator or university administrator says, Hey, what you do is just out there in general. And so we don't really need you as a specialist anymore. Your skills have been
1: casualized to the extent that they are free.
4: Yeah, but, and and that might be an argument that wins. It, it's grossly untrue to the reality of the situation. Right. Like the distance between what a booktuber is doing and what CNI is doing is almost infinite. Yeah.
1: Thus concludes the 10th episode of Criticism Limited, part of the eighth season of the American Vandal podcast from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. For more about this episode, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash parabooks or subscribe to my Substack newsletter. I'm Matt Siebel. Thanks for listening.